This is a Woodside Church podcast. Well, good morning, everyone. It's tremendous when the whole prophetic time in the worship fits what you're going to speak about. Um, so that was that was great. Um, and so I'll obviously be referring back to that a little bit when we while we while I preach to you. And the title of my message today is. It's a message for Advent, the story of Joseph, a righteous man. Okay, and I've got to read the scripture in a few minutes that's referred to there. And just by way of introduction, this is the second Sunday in Advent, actually. Now, Advent, what's that? Well, it's not just calendars with chocolate in it. Okay. And then our sort of churches, we can sometimes lose the power of some of the church calendar issues. And uh, so Richard started with Aramaic. Um, I'll start with Latin, because Advent is simply the Latin word for the coming or the arrival of Jesus. And so... uh, It means looking forward to Jesus coming. So it's when the church anticipates and prepares for the celebration of Jesus coming into the world for the first time. But as Richard spoke about, also looking forward to his coming again to bring the new heaven and new earth where righteousness is the righteousness, peace, mercy and love are the whole atmosphere of the world. That's what Jesus is going to do. And as Richard said at the beginning, I was, you know, he was almost taking, I have to keep saying, as you said, Richard, because you can take, completely take in the first paragraph of my notes, uh, that that's desperately what we're looking forward to. But as Ruth brought to us, we're looking forward to not just in desperation, but in hope. Okay, because when you're talking about a season of Advent, Jesus coming, that immediately means it's a season of hope. It was a season of hope at the beginning, as we'll see in the scripture I'm going to read, and it's the season of hope for us now as we anticipate Jesus coming into this world. And uh, you see, one of the things I benefit from traveling all around the world all the time, well, not all the time recently, but uh, just one trip to Ukraine, but uh, normally is we hear lots of different languages. And languages are wonderful. You know, I love learning languages. I try and learn key words wherever I go. And uh, the the problem is, it makes us realise that many languages are rich in things that English isn't. Okay. So if you're just if you only speak English, you know, you know, you know the old joke. What do you call someone who speaks three, langu- three languages? Trilingual. What do you call somebody who speaks two languages? Bilingual. What do you 
call someone who speaks one language an Englishman. Okay. <laughs> um, and so, <laughs> the, but the, the, as you travel around, you find how rich languages are. And this problem with English in, in two words that, came, that come today, firstly, that word hope. In the Bible, hope is not something, well, well, like, like we say in English, well, I hope so. As if, well, it might be, it might not. I'd be rather glad if it was. And that's not biblical hope. Hope is looking forward to a certainty. Okay? When Roland spoke about attending that funeral of a relative of his this week, he wasn't hoping it'll all turn out all right. He was looking forward with certainty to the fact that it will be all right. And the person will be raised with Christ. So hope is... Excuse me, Ruth, you had not got a better word to use. There isn't another one in the English language. But hope is certainty. The other word that we use that's a bit weak is wait. You know, those that wait upon the Lord. Advent is the time of waiting for Jesus to come. And the scripture says, those that wait on the Lord will um, renew their strength. But the problem is, the word wait is very passive in English. You know, I'm just waiting. <laughs> okay? Whereas actually, the idea there of those that wait on the Lord, and other languages have that in them. I've found that often when I'm going to places, they say, you know, they're very nice, and they say, we'd love you to come back. So I said, okay, yeah, I'm sure we'll come back. God willing. And then they say, we are waiting for you. Now, that doesn't mean we're hanging around waiting. It's expecting. And in fact, they, their word should really be translated by the English word expect. Do you understand? And so this is a time of hope. It's a time of expecting. It's a time of knowing that Jesus is coming to put everything right and that his first coming has already laid the foundation for things to be right in our lives. You understand? And so an Advent is also an opportunity to look in more depth at some of the themes of Christmas, which we're not always able to do in an all-age carol service, which is what I want to do today. And so I want us to learn from Joseph's part in the Christmas story from Matthew's Gospel. Okay, so let's read it together. Matthew's Gospel, chapter 1. Verses 18 to 25. This is how Jesus the Messiah was born. His mother Mary was engaged to be married to Joseph. But before the marriage took place, while she was still a virgin, she became pregnant through the power of the Holy Spirit. Joseph, to whom she was engaged, was a righteous man, and did not want to disgrace her publicly. So he decided to break the engagement quietly. Or actually, that translation doesn't give the full power of it, it's actually divorce her quietly. Okay? 
Divorcer, most translations would say. As he considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream. Joseph, son of David, the angel said, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child within her was conceived by the Holy Spirit, and she will have a son, and you are to name him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All of this occurred to fulfill the Lord's message through, the prof- through his prophet, this is the prophet Isaiah. Look, the virgin will conceive a child. She will give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God is with us. When Joseph woke up, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded and took Mary as his wife. But he did not have sexual relationships with her until our son was born. And Joseph named him Jesus. Okay, so what is the story of Joseph, the righteous man, it says? Well, firstly, I just have to go into some background issues. The problem is for almost everybody in this room, I would think, reading the Bible is a cross-cultural experience. Do you know that? It's a cross-cultural experience because... It's written to a culture very, very different from our own. And therefore, to understand the scriptures, we have to remember that. And we don't first come and apply it to how our situation in Britain or in the situation of whatever culture you particularly come from. You first say, how did they understand it? And then... Therefore, how does that apply to us now? And so you must always do that with the Bible. Okay? It's not complicated exactly. You don't have to be an expert. But you just have to remember, don't let me, think of, don't let me look at this through the spectacles of my own culture and how we are today. Look at it. What did it, what would this have meant to the people who originally heard it and to whom it was originally written to? In fact, you could describe the job of a preacher simply as making the scriptures have the same impact upon us today, in whatever culture we are, as it did on the original listeners. Because it's the word of God that does the work. Our job is simply to take that word of God and make sure that it has the impact that it did upon the original hearers. Okay? So, Mary, uh, so Matthew tells us what had happened. Mary and Joseph were engaged to be married. However, while still a virgin, she became pregnant by the Holy Spirit. However... Though we know that from the verse, because that comes there, Joseph did not know at first how she became pregnant. Just that his fiancée was expecting a child and it wasn't his. Because he had not slept with her yet. Okay? Now imagine that. 
We're so used to the Christmas story that we don't really get into what was going on here. In those days, unlike in the West today, an engagement was a legal agreement. In ancient Israel of this time, girls were usually betrothed or engaged to a man in their early teens and then taken into the husband's home a year or so later. Don't read modern Western, and I know some of you are from other cultures and you'll have your own ceremonies for engagement and so on. Don't read modern Western understanding of engagement, etc., which comes after. I mean, I didn't realise that we were going to celebrate an engagement when I was uh, (laughs) preparing this, so do forgive me for that. Uh, But, you know, in the West, engagement usually follows getting to know somebody, Dating, sometimes people date several people before they find the right one. Okay. Okay. And, but that wasn't the case in ancient Israel at that time, as it isn't in most of the world today. You have to remember, Western forms of engagement and marriage are a minority probably within the world today. But we tend to think of it as normal. Do you understand? And I'm just, I'm not, please, those of you who come from other cultures, apply what I'm saying to yours, because some of your cultures will be much closer to the culture of the Bible than, our, than the Western culture is. And you have an advantage, therefore. And so, um, the contract of engagement was between two families. Now, many in this church come from a culture where the engagement is very important because it's an agreement between two families. Okay, can many of you relate to that? You can, yeah. That's a more normal way, of actually. So the engagement would have been a, uh, a, a, between two families, was public, and also was entirely based on the virginity of the bride. That's why breaking an engagement could be described as divorce. Okay? Matthew's Gospel goes on to speak about divorce later on, and um, basically there's what the grounds for that are, which is adultery on behalf of the other person, Okay, but that would apply to engagements and to uh, the after the wedding itself. Also, because Mary was pregnant, and she knew how, because the angel Gabriel had appeared to her, but nobody else did. And in a shame-honour culture, now let me just explain that, Western culture in the, law, in the main is law-guilt. So you break the law, you're guilty. Okay. 
The culture of the Bible, though guilt came into it, the culture of the Bible is much more, as it is in the East today, shame, honour. That is, that if something happens, you bring shame on your family and community. It's not even thought of just as an individual. And so the whole family would have been dishonoured or shamed by this pregnancy. How, they'd have, how all the people around would have looked at it was that the father would be seen as unable to protect his daughter. Okay. Forgive me going into all this, but you don't understand the Bible unless you understand the culture in which it was written. And so, in the Old Testament, and this is a very difficult one for us today, and praise God, even by the time this was written, it didn't apply. And Jesus, of course, overturned with some of his stories the whole thing. But the Old Testament law provided for the stoning of both the young woman and the man for this disgrace if it happened in a town. You might say, what earth does that mean? Why in a town? If it happened in the country, it says, in the countryside, it's only the man that's guilty. Why? Because it says, because in a town, I don't know if you've been to ancient towns, you know, Silla and I, when we were in Israel, visited Capernaum, and you could see all the buildings were so close together. Everybody knew everything. There was no sort of personal space. When Jesus wanted personal space, he had to go up a mountain. He wouldn't have personal space in the town. Everybody knew everybody's business. So if it was in a town, then the woman couldn't have called out for help. The woman would have called out for help. And uh, if she hadn't called out for help, then that shows that she was guilty as well as the man. Whereas if it had been in the open country, the Bible says, and so this is protecting women's rights, actually. If it happened in the, uh, it happened in the open country, that's only the man, because the woman, there was nobody to help the woman on that occasion. You understand? But that's the background to the shame that this would have been, this story would have uh, brought upon Mary's family and on Joseph. And so, by the time that this took place, it was not stoning, but public disgrace. And, nor, and normally Jesus, uh, sorry, Joseph would have been, ang- would have, uh, could have angrily exposed Mary and the family. And so he would have got, you know, if, if he hadn't had that dream, what he would have been expected to do is call out the family, divorce and break the engagement, and... Uh, they would then, the whole family would be under disgrace in the whole community and Mary probably would never have married. However, so this is 
A strange situation. Why did God do it this way, do you think? Do you ever wonder that? One commentator said this, it was God's intention to introduce the Messiah to Israel by means of a virgin birth. It is difficult to see how a virgin birth could have occurred without him being embarrassing to someone. It would have been possible to reduce embarrassment, however, by involving only one person, Mary, say prior to any engagement, rather than, as in our story, involving two persons, Mary and Joseph, who are an engaged couple. So God chose to introduce his Messiah to the world, yes, through a virgin birth, so uh, there are all sorts of good theological reasons for that, but in a way, therefore, that brought embarrassment upon this engaged couple. God chose to do that. Why? Because God, the Bible says, his ways are not our ways. Okay? And God, in bringing Jesus into the world, also broke all kinds of, uh, not regulations exactly, but all kinds of things that would that people would put up to show their own righteousness so that they trust in him alone. You understand? Just like when Jesus was grown up, the people he touched and healed first in Matthew's Gospel are those who wouldn't be allowed into the temple. He touched lepers. He touched um, others who wouldn't... uh, He touched... Those who weren't Jews. None of them who had been allowed into the temple. Why? Because he was breaking all that old system and showing that his mercy was to all. And even this, this introduction of, um, in this context, was, was that. And so that's how God worked. Now it says here that Joseph was righteous. And so did not want to disgrace her publicly. What does that mean? Now, we often interpret righteous as following the law exactly. On that that understanding, Joseph should have applied the law, and if not stoning, should have shamed Mary and her family publicly. Already we're introduced to a different quality of righteousness and justice. Namely, that was prophesied by Isaiah. He will bring justice to the nations by not crushing the weak and bringing justice to all who were wronged. It's a higher justice which includes mercy. You understand? When we read righteous, we think of someone who does right things. Is that right? Righteous in scripture, in this scripture, is somebody who not only does right things, but in doing right things shows mercy to those that may have offended. Wow. Christians often think of righteous as doing the right thing, don't we? Biblical righteousness includes showing mercy to those who are afflicted. You understand? If you're just righteous by saying, I always do what's right, but don't show mercy, you're not righteous. Joseph was a righteous man, and because of that, he said, he didn't want to 
bring shame to her, but resolved simply to divorce her quietly. Okay. And that sadly, that's a higher justice which anticipates the Christian gospel and still is sadly overlooked by many Christians. Do you understand? Are you with me? Hello, talk to me. That's it. Great, great. Then it says, as Joseph was considering the news of Mary's pregnancy. Now, considering is a very polite way of describing Joseph's feelings at this point. The root of the word meant to be furious. Furious, but what shall I do? Uh, The Middle East scholar uh, Kenneth Bailey says this, Perhaps long centuries of veneration for Saint Joseph have led many to an assumption that he could not become angry, particularly not with Mary. But this is to overlook the pure humanness of the man. On hearing that his fiancée was pregnant, is he expected to sit quietly and consider this matter? Can you imagine that? Or would he naturally feel deeply disappointed and indeed angry? As observed, his understanding of justice, which I've just talked about, led him to do the right thing and treat Mary in a humane fashion. But did that prevent him from feeling the anger of betrayal? The root of the Greek word used here is thymos, which occurs once in the Gospels where it is used to describe the wrath or anger of the congregation in the synagogue when it rose up to stone Jesus. That's the other time this word is used. Okay? So imagine Joseph, please. Okay? Feeling betrayed, feeling angry. His fiancée is pregnant. He didn't know how. Therefore, what should I do? And then he had a dream. An angel appeared, not physically as to Mary, but in a dream. Many cultures appreciate God speaking through dreams and the Bible supports that. God speaks through dreams sometimes. Doesn't mean every dream is God speaking, don't worry. Okay. <laughs> yeah. It's unlike, the fact that he was going to divorce her quietly means that I think uh, she, she would not yet have been necessarily communicating with him about why it is because he didn't know the, uh, the, the angel revealed to him in the dream why she was preg- how she was pregnant he didn't know that before so obviously she hadn't told him it's fun having questions when you're preaching I like it okay <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Not British, no. <laughs> Britain have not generally been known for their mercy to people all over the years. Okay. All right. Pardon? Okay. 
So, and, and so the, he revealed to Joseph in the dream that Mary's pregnancy was the work of the Holy Spirit, not another man. And, uh, and so Joseph received that in a dream. And so Joseph then took Mary to be his wife. He takes his early mercy into something greater than mercy, which was amazing grace. Shame in that culture must fall on somebody. Mary, her fa- either Mary and or her father. But Joseph takes the shame on himself by marrying Mary and naming, that is, becoming the legal father of the child. Jewish tradition said, if a man says this is my son, he is to be believed. Okay? So, you, 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 you following me? You understand that this is the Christmas story? Okay. So he was taking the shame on himself. He was saying, by marrying Mary and naming the son, he was saying, this is my responsibility. So Joseph, therefore, takes the shame, disgrace and dishonour on himself, ruining his own reputation for the sake of Mary. Grace is self-sacrificial. It moves towards shame and absorbs it. Gossip about Jesus' birth and conception occurred throughout his life. You know, they kept reading in John Gospel chapter 8, for example, and so we, you know, we know who our father is, they said. Joseph's decision legally secured Jesus a place in the world in the line of David. Remember, in the, he was addressed as Joseph, son of David, son of the great king, and the Messiah had to come from the line of David. And... So he did not condemn, he rather took the shame on himself. Jesus later showed sympathy for an accused woman in the same way. Neither do I condemn you. You understand? So one or two lessons for us. Sorry, I'm running out of time really, but here we are. Can I, Richard, can I? It's all right. Okay. Lessons for us. Firstly... God came into this earth in Jesus by the Holy Spirit. You know, I preached a couple of years ago on the doctrine of the Trinity, some of you may remember. And so in God the Father sent the Son by the Holy Spirit. Okay, the whole of the Trinity, the whole of God, Father, Son and Holy Spirit are involved in the coming of Jesus into this world to transform the whole of, the whole of life. The Holy Spirit's work is emphasised twice in the account itself and in Joseph's dream. God's intervention in history is by God, the Holy Spirit. God's intervention now in individual lives is similarly a work of the Holy Spirit. Okay? It's the Holy Spirit at work. And that was what was revealed to him and what we're to pray for today. Holy Spirit, God, reveal yourself to people by your Holy Spirit. 
It's the only way. Our words don't do it. Our words explain, but it's the Holy Spirit that works in people's lives. We, we sang one great carol at the beginning, one other carol, a, a, a little town of Bethlehem. There's one line in there which reads like this. O holy child of Bethlehem, descend to us, we pray. Cast out our sin and enter in. Be born in us today. How? By the Holy Spirit. You understand? And so we pray for him to work in us by the Holy Spirit. We pray for him to work in um, those who don't yet believe by the Holy Spirit. It's how Jesus is born in people today. Okay. Upon us and upon the wider community. Then secondly, Jesus's act, sorry, Joseph's action prefigures the core of the gospel story. Expressed at the cross, which we rejoiced in. That was wonderful singing that song. Uh, they're really great songs he chose. Thank you. Prefigures the core of the gospel story expressed in the cross. Because at the cross, Jesus took on himself not only our sin, but the shame. Not only the sins of the world, but the shame of the world. Understand? Which again, to Westerners doesn't mean as much. To those from a shame on a culture, it means a tremendous amount. I, I not only am forgiven, I'm also honoured. That's the opposite of shame. The opposite of my sin, uh, being guilty, is being forgiven. The opposite of being shamed is being honoured. And at the cross, Jesus took all the shame, everything that would cause us to be ashamed, and said, instead, I'm going to give you the honour of becoming part of my family. Because honour attached to a family. In that culture, he cancelled, he carried our shame in the most shameful death possible. The cross was, you know, why the cross? Why not some further form of execution? Because the cross particularly spoke of shame, both in Jewish and Roman culture. In Roman culture, the cross was reserved for slaves and outcasts, which we deserve to be. And in, in Jewish culture, it said, cursed is everybody who hangs on a tree. Understand? So at the cross, Jesus took our shame. Jesus entered into our situation, just like Joseph took the shame in, this, in these circumstances. So Jesus took the shame on a much bigger scale for the whole world. And in Western culture, shame's coming in a bit now. People are getting shamed all the time. In fact, the guilt's almost gone in, a, in, in, in some, you know. It's hardly, it's more. You can be shamed on social media. You can be shamed by, uh, you know, all sorts of things. Remember, if you're shamed, Jesus says, I've taken the shame and you're honoured. You understand? Whatever they may say about you in shame, Jesus says, I took that and now you're honoured because you are uh, part 
of the family that I have brought together, the people of God. In the song we sang, praise God, it didn't just refer to our sins being taken but, and bear our shame. You notice that? Or as you too put it, grace, she takes the blame, she covers the shame, remo- removes the stain, could be her name. Okay? Reference to a she there is like wisdom in the Old Testament. It's referred to as she. Uh, and grace. It's a play on words slightly, but grace does those things. And the naming of Jesus. He was given two names. Firstly, Jesus, or Joshua actually, as it would have been Yeshua. Because God will save his people from sin. Notice it says, will save his people, not just individuals. We are saved as individuals, but honoured by being part of the people of God. The brothers and sisters of Jesus, as he says, I'm not ashamed to call them my brothers and sisters. That's wonderful news. Okay. But... It's the honour of being part of the people of God. This is, un- post, as we come out of the pandemic, this is one of the big challenges for the Christian church. Will people just go resort to being individually good Christians? Or will they be restored to being the people of God come together? You understand? Yes, your honour is being part of the people of God. He will save his people. Not just a lot of individuals, but his people. Because God is forming a people, a bride for his son, who can express that corporately. And we need to pray for that at the moment. That will properly be restored to the church because it's under attack. Secondly, Emmanuel refers to a prophecy by Isaiah, a young woman in the Hebrew Bible. Um, uh, The word can mean young woman or virgin. It was fulfilled partially in Isaiah's day because a a child would have been born, but looked forward to a greater prophetic fulfilment when Jesus came. And the word means God with us. It's an important theme to Matthew. So he later says, when we gather together... For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. I'm present when you gather. And then when we go on mission, remember at the end of Matthew's gospel, go into all the world. You remember that scripture? Go into all the world, make disciples of all the nations, teaching them to obey everything I've taught you. And then he says, I am with you all the days. So he's Emmanuel at birth, he's Emmanuel when we gather together, and he's Emmanuel as we go in our mission. Okay, he's with us. And finally, obedience was necessary. Joseph obeyed the angel's instruction. I mean, it's quite remarkable, really. You know, he had a dream, an angel came, and then it says... When Joseph woke up, he did as the angel of the Lord 
had commanded and took Mary as his wife. In the birth of Jesus, there were two obedient disciples, Joseph and Mary. Remember, Mary said, let it be according to your word. Even when she was told she was going to have a, uh, a baby, though she was a virgin. Despite the cost, despite the disgrace, and despite the shame. Both would have had, both, both Joseph and Mary would have had to endure disgrace from their culture. And Christians generally have to endure disgrace from their culture. Today, I'll just close with this, it's a solemn note, but by the things that we believe in, because we believe the word of God, we may have to suffer disgrace from our culture. Okay, our post-Christian secular culture. And it's, it's very hard. It's hard for younger people growing up. Everybody in the culture is saying this on issues of creation, on issues of sexuality. All the culture is saying this. And it's a shame to stand up against your culture. But that's what Joseph and Mary did as obedient disciples. They stood up against the culture. And it's what Christians in all over the world are having to do. Many, many of them are being persecuted literally and put in prison for their faith. Understand? And we have to be prepared to be those who will be put to shame by our culture knowing we're honoured by the Lord, which is what Joseph and Mary had to do. They were shamed in their culture, but they were honoured by God. I'm sorry I've been so long. It just took a long time to get through that, to try and get the cultural pattern. I've broken all the rules. Do forgive me. Uh, and let me just pray. Sorry, Richard, you, should have, you could have stopped me, honestly. <laughs> okay. Father, we do thank you for the amazing way in which Jesus came into the world to bear our shame. Lord, thank you for the wonderful picture shown to us by the Christmas story. Lord, help us. Help us to live as obedient disciples in every context, Lord, whatever may be the cost. Father, I pray in Jesus' name. And all God's people who agreed with me said, Amen. Amen. <laughs> Amen. God bless and get your children good. You have been listening to a Woodside Church podcast. For more information, visit woodsidechurch.com.